Okay, besties are back. Besties are back. Going around the horn. Rain Man David Sachs calling in from an undisclosed location, suffering through two Code 13s in one lifetime. <laughs> and David Friedberg is here, the queen of quinoa, spacking everything in sight, living the life, calling in from a nondescript Ritz-Carlton room, it appears to be. <laughs> And, of course, the dictator himself, Chamath Polyhopatia, cackling like a fool. Welcome back, everybody. This is what you pay for with your subscription to the All In Podcast, brought to you by Slack. Uh, if you didn't own Slack shares, <laughs> raise your hand. <laughs> it's been an incredible uh, week um, on a number of levels. We're going to talk this week about uh, Salesforce buying Slack. Trump and Section 230, uh, the Coinbase, the ongoing Coinbase saga. Uh, Freeberg found some interesting science that could save humanity. And, of course, the trust fund socialists in the New York Times who hate their parents for giving them money. Uh, let's we, start off Let's with, start with off the most important thing. What is that? Shirt undershirt combo you're wearing. I mean, look, it's just, it's, you have buttons on buttons. It's, is that the, did I break the layering rule? Uh, you can't. You can't school us. If you're going to layer properly, you can have only one layer of buttons. But to have two layers of buttons, it, that's not how it works. No, J, J, J. Cal went in and got an I don't almond. Know. Layers got, are for he, players, yeah. not me. No, he got you, like an almond milk cappuccino, and he's like, "I like how that barista dresses, and I'm going to wear that from now on." Wait like, a second. Can I ask a technical <laughs> question? Can Can I have buttons? I can't have buttons on buttons, but can I have buttons and then a zipper up, like with the no, you can't do that either. Um, listen, Chamath has had a weird aversion to buttons ever since he spent that time in Italy. <laughs> Did you? Was he button shamed in Italy? I, I wasn't. I was a little button shamed, but I'm looking at Sax has buttons on his collars, which just makes no sense. Sax is wearing the same Brooks Brothers shirt that he graduated high school in. It, at Brooks, he owns seventeen percent of Brooks Brothers at this point. From the number of blazers he's bought there. All right, let's get off to it. We've insulted each other. I don't think Freeberg's taken the brunt of anything yet. Anybody have any uh, chop busting they want to do with Freeberg, no, or is that I, just sort of built in? No, Freeberg took the tablecloth that I used for a picnic in the summertime <laughs> and uh, made it into a shirt. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, you have to be frugal at this time, and also Freeberg cares about the environment. He's not going to just let a picnic... It was a hemp-based tablecloth, and so I knew it was going to get taken and stolen. I love I how I choose to spend my time with you guys. It just, it just pays off. Here we go. All right, can we kick this off? All right, let's kick it off with our advertisement for nobody, because Chamath will not <laughs> let me make any money off of this podcast. Uh, and thanks again for the suggestion that we launch a syndicate with no carry. Now a bunch of dipshits on Twitter are like, hey, when is the all-in syndicate starting? I'm like, never. I need to make a living. I need to get my beak wet. And I, this I, week- I'm sorry, but I think a, a, an all-in syndicate would be super, super disruptive and cool. I'm totally fine with running it as long as we can have the 20% carry and I'll manage the whole thing. We got four people on the call. Four or five, we each get 5% carry, but we got to make a living here. Not everybody's mm. made a Chamath. Not everybody's got SPACs A through Z or had all of their Slack shares bought. Uh, I think we'll kick it off with that. Chamath, we saw this week 
In fact, just two days ago, Salesforce in a record transaction for a SaaS company, I think it's the highest ever paid for a SaaS company, $27 billion, $27.7 billion for Slack, which has only been public for just over a year, I think. You were, I think, did the Series B in Slack right after they did the pivot at Social Capital. I don't know if that was in the, fund one or two, but Phil Helmuth keeps talking series, about it. It was the Series B in tiny spec, but it was the Series A in Slack. And um, there's a really important story, which is that um, myself and Ray Co, um, who's my partner at Social Capital, we've worked together now for, my gosh, I think it's probably 15 years. Um, wrote a really great memo justifying the investment in Slack. And it had to do with one thing and one thing only. We ignored the revenue and ARR. I mean, it was fine and nice and good. But the single biggest thing that we were attracted to was something that we looked at and which was called um, intercompany edges. And even back in 2015 or 16, when we did this original investment, there was this dynamic where people across companies were communicating via Slack channels. And I was completely stunned by this idea because that was effectively a substitution for email. Because the only way you communicate across companies today is by email. You know, David is at craftventures.com and he emails me at socialcapital.com and I email Jason at inside.com. That's how we communicate across across businesses, except now all of a sudden you could be messaging and having a much more real-time interface. That to me was incredibly disruptive and it justified um, the entirety of the real forward-looking investment thesis. Now, fast forward five years later, and these guys have more usage on a daily basis than Facebook, which is stunning because you know these guys have 10 million DAUs and Facebook has 2 billion. So it just goes to show you the quantity of traffic and and the the volume of information and theoretically, you know, productivity that's happening on Slack. And so I'm not sure <clears throat> what Salesforce bought. I actually think that, you know, you can make a case why um, it's a shame that it got bought, um, a very strong one, in fact. But what they did get, whether they know it or not, is an intercompany edge effect, which is the most disruptive thing to email. And in the hands of Salesforce and that sales team, I think it has the ability to really be a very disruptive um, force for good in enterprise software. All right, so Sachs, this is a natural um, passing of the ball to you and the baton because you did Yammer, sold it to Microsoft for a billion dollars, and obviously Slack was the mobile successor to uh, the desktop version of Yammer, and you got a lot of your um, fingerprints all over this. But the fact is, you did a tweet storm about it, Slack is an unbelievable success. Stuart is a great uh, founder. It's, you know, he sold his first company, Flickr, for $30 million, This one for almost $30 billion, So that's pretty nice. But there was one failure, and you pointed out in your tweet storm. Explain what the one failure, if you could pick out of the hundreds of things, thousands of things they did right. There was one thing they did wrong that, uh, to Chamath's point, would have resulted in them remaining an independent company that could have become worth more than $27 billion. Yeah, it was it was a slowness to embrace the idea of enterprise sales. Um, and and by the way, let's put this in context. I mean, Stuart and the Slack team did a phenomenal job. Thirty billion dollar exit, um, seven years of just about flawless execution. So I don't want to. And and also, you know, I was an investor in the company. So thank you to Stuart for letting me invest. I'm definitely don't want to sound like an ingrate or a critic. I mean, they just they did a phenomenal job. But if you were to nitpick 
just one one little thing that I think they could have uh, done faster, it would have been embracing enterprise sales. The big learning from Yammer, uh, you know, we learned this at Yammer from 2008 to 2012, is that enterprises don't self-serve, right? They don't self-close. Bottom-up SaaS products are phenomenal for generating top of funnel, basically generating leads, but you have to have salespeople close the deals and enterprises don't just kind of pull out a credit card and, and self-serve you. They need a salesperson. And I think there was um, something in the DF, DNA of Slack that actually I see really very commonly uh, in the DNA of, of sort of producty SaaS companies, producty SaaS founders, which is they kind of have a reflexive dislike or distaste for sales and they resist the idea of sales and they want to believe that they can just be entirely product driven. And, um, and what, what I see and across the board is they all come to the same realization that, that we had a Yammer, which is we have to have a sales team. And I do remember, you know, back in 2014, the whole Yammer sales team was basically rolling off, um, because of, you know, Microsoft acquired the company in 2012 and there was an integration period. And by 2013, 2014, they were all looking for jobs. And I remember, you know, my, my former, uh, CRO, I think was interviewing at Slack and it would have been such a perfect thing for them because he had just learned all the lessons of how you layer on kind of an enterprise sale on top of a, of a bottom up product. And they just weren't ready to, to make that higher yet. Um, and so look, if you're going to nitpick, look, $30 billion outcome, no one's criticizing, but if you were to nitpick, you know, um, it's, it's an A plus regardless, but you know, this would be the one thing you could, you could say. Well, congratulations all around to everybody involved, <clears throat> especially Phil Helmuth, who was an LP in one of Chamath's funds. So if you need insights on Slack uh, or any of the inside information, you can just follow Phil Helmuth on Twitter at being the greatest or I am the greatest or I'll always be the greatest. One of those Twitter handles is his. But, but, but Jason, I mean, you, you basically came to the same conclusion in your emergency pod, right? I mean- I did. I hadn't seen your, I think your tweet came after the emergency pod, mm -hmm. but uh, yeah, it, it just seemed to me this company, unlike Zoom, uh, should have been able to grow quicker. And if you look at their numbers, they had 87 companies that had were spending over a million dollars. You put a rabid sales team on that product and they go in like Benioff does with his sales team. I mean, he was just hyper aggressive at just putting huge numbers out there and saying you have to pay us this much money so much so that i don't know if you remember elon getting into a public spat with him where he's like salesforce is horrible software get it out of the organization and he basically banned it because they came to him with the bottom-up people using of salesforce and said hey you owe us this amount of money and elon was like f you banned forever from inside of our organization we'll build our own software we don't need it uh, and and they didn't have somebody and stewart didn't have that dna i think to say aggressively we need to charge what this product is worth. And you saw that in, I think, one of their strengths and weaknesses, which was they only build you for people who were actively using the product. Now, that's a beautiful, awesome feature. It makes you not scared to use it. But on the enterprise level, I mean, that seemed to be like maybe one of those non-cutthroat things that maybe were holding them back. David, do you have any insights on this or should we go on to AlphaFold? It's, um, it's, uh, it's really important to remember the, the mechanics and the game theory around 
M&A, especially, you know, big game hunting when you're doing $30 billion acquisitions. Um, it's also kind of true at billion dollar levels, but less so. Um, but the bigger the acquisition gets, you have to remember that there's an asymmetry of information between buyers and sellers. And the question is, who does the asymmetry favor? Hmm. Right. Because you could look at this acquisition and say, wow, Salesforce is crazy for spending $30 billion. And somebody else may say, wow, Slack was really stupid for selling it for $30 billion. Right. Um, the reality is that I think that there was asymmetries on both sides. I think that what Slack probably saw, and I don't know, because I've been off the board now for more than a year. Um, but I think what they saw was, as David said, just, um, you know, a level of sophistication and scale and ability to cross-sell and upsell that was needed for mm. enterprise scale. Either you overcome it with precision and speed, or you overcome it by going the same pace as somebody like Microsoft, but with an equivalent product portfolio. So that's that's sort of one realization that 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 Slack had. But in in the case of you know. Um, um, Salesforce, what they probably had was a realization that they couldn't go wall to wall inside of a customer because they didn't really have a product that was useful or usable to every single individual inside of an enterprise. And so both of those two things create asymmetries. There's a level of fear inside of Slack and there's a level of fear inside of Salesforce. Both of them are about the fear of disruption. And then the question is who gets the better of the other person in the middle of the acquisition, right? So the deal could have probably gotten done at you know 22 billion it probably could have also gotten done at 45 billion um and that's again to a combination of um how well you play poker in that moment right who blinks first and the quality of the bankers this is like two people having top pair on a very textured board it's like yeah who, it's uh, and they're just who, raising versus each other them. yeah it's who <laughs> plays them because like it's similar also to like how microsoft bought linkedin right because if you think about what happened in linkedin if you remember when that happened it was Almost to a T, very much like Slack. LinkedIn had a one bad quarter. They got decapitated by I, you know, and I owned it at the time in the in our public fund. It got decapitated by like 50, 60, 70 percent. I mean, something insane for missing numbers by like a few pennies. Okay. And all of a sudden, it took a lot of the wind out of their sales internally. It didn't change the user momentum at all because, you know, the users that were signing up for LinkedIn didn't care what the stock price was yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Um, but it all of a sudden created a fear. And I think Microsoft was able to exploit that fear. And within a year, this company was bought for $25 billion. Not dissimilar, you know, Slack had, uh, you know, a hiccup. And uh, they got re-rated, the stock bounced back. Um, but I think that um, if Salesforce was smart, they probably created, you know, sort of like a white knight kind of bid that said, listen, you need enterprise scale and the ability to cross sell and upsell, I can give it to you. And Slack probably said, listen, you need to go wall to wall. So I understand why you need me. And you know, the price is what the price is. Good, Freeberg. If you look at the pricing, right? So Slack... Normally, the way these big M&A, you know, public company M&A deals get done is the board has to approve the price and they have to say this was the right deal for us relative to other options. And one of the ways you, ass you assess that is you look at where the share price has been historically. And if you're getting a premium to where the share price has been historically, let's say 30, 40 percent higher than it's ever been, then the board says, great, that's a good deal. We should take it because we've got a long way to grow into that value. Um, in this case, the deal was done not at a very high premium to where Slack traded just in the summer. Uh, is that right, Chamat? So it looked like it peaked. It's basically, if you look at the it's fully It's a 10% premium, right? 10% yeah. premium, yeah. 
ten percent premium. Yeah, we we opened the direct listing at forty or forty one, and then right. this was at forty five. Right, and so there there clearly was a, a sense of weakness from the board, which is um, I think why the Salesforce stock traded down afterwards. Because if they were willing to sell at that small of a premium, the forecast internally is probably feeling not that strong. And then people translate that into, hey, Salesforce bought something that's not that strong. Um, you know, there's there's something a little bit amiss. But but obviously, to your point, they're missing a lot of the cross-selling and the synergy that that that, that will. Arise. I think it's a huge slam dunk acquisition, and I go back to the this uh, idea of intercompany um, network effects. Um, I think they exist, and I think they're real. And I think that the slack the the slack um, product team's ability to innovate around that. Um, was not as fast as it could have been, but it was still very unique. And I think it was, um, it was a true moat. And, you know, the, the tragedy is we won't see what the terminal value is if they were, um, left alone to execute. And it, in this weird way, like I've always struggled with why Microsoft was so overly obsessed with Slack, because if you looked at the team's product, it was much more directly competitive with Zoom. And to this day still remains much more directly competitive with Zoom than Slack. But, you know, there we have it. And if you look at the revenue, um, Slack was doing 800 million run rates. So anyway, rounded up to a billion. And yet Salesforce at 20 billion. Uh, so 5% revenue to revenue. And then they got 10% of the company. So in that way, if you look at it on a percentage basis, which is, you know, how you might look at the Facebook, Instagram, and, and WhatsApp is what percentage of the existing entity did they get? Right, the size growing, size growing about sixty percent a year, and Salesforce is growing yeah. about twenty two percent, something like that. The other thing uh, is the president mm -hmm. of Salesforce is uh, Brett Taylor, who uh, was our CTO at Facebook, who I worked with, and so I think Brett also understands network effects really well. Um, and you know, by the way, in in this interesting twist of fate, Benioff was the underbidder, I think, for LinkedIn, and so yes. um, you know, we've uh, we've seen Mark around the hoop on these you know, social network, network effect, business tool um, acquisitions before. And finally, also Twitter, his, he was running, right. he was also hanging around the basket with Twitter. Right. And then they yeah. also brought his name up for TikTok, which made no sense. So yeah. I think Benioff is just looking at this like, if if Google and Microsoft and Apple are too scared to buy things because of antitrust, well, I'm under the radar of the antitrust trillion dollars. So I'm I'm the only well, game he's, in town, he, right? He's under he's under the radar because he doesn't have a play in this sort of communication or collaboration space. And so therefore there are no antitrust issues. Um if Microsoft were to do it, it would definitely be scrutinized because you could argue that they're adding to their existing dominant market share and and collaboration. Um but Benioff's dream has always been, at least since he uh you know launched Chatter to compete with with us when we were doing Yammer. This is back in 2010 2011 is he his dream has always been to have a product that could get him onto every seat in the enterprise you know his current product set has is departmental i mean you've got mm -hmm. kind of the crm product for sales and they've got the support cloud for customer support and they've got the marketing cloud for marketing and so he's gone department by department but he's never really had a sort of pan like sort of cross company yeah. yeah something that the entire company would use like and a central that's login system right and slack mm -hmm. is that central login system but when you when he came up against you it was very you know benioff you're friendly yeah. with benioff <laughs> benioff came at you so hard 
He threw three or four hundred engineers at chatter. He took out full page Wall Street Journal ads. He tried to poach your people. He tried to make the product free. He made it personal against you after you would not sell to him. True or <laughs> false, David Sachs. I don't I don't think he made it personal, but uh it was definitely. Did it a, feel a personal? Um Did he hurt your no, feelings? No, 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 no. It he did. That's I understood what he was trying to saying. do. That's your way of saying no. Here. I mean, if we had sold to Salesforce, like we we ended up. So what I would say is, yeah, we got in like a very. It was a very competitive situation. He didn't beat us. Um, you he know, failed. I, I what's that? He failed. Does that product even exist? Yeah, um, it, it's sort of like a feed inside of the the CRM product. It, it didn't really succeed as a standalone collaboration product, and so we won that battle. But it definitely, I would say, it scared us enough to sell to Microsoft. Um, because you know, the, what did we he were about to, you? we were about to enter a new stage of competition. So here's what happened is he launched his product to kind of be a clone of Yammer inside of Salesforce, but he was initially charging $15 per seat. We were charging like five. And so they massively overpriced it and, and they event, and then they, they were on this like slippery slope where they kept lowering the price to compete better with us. And then finally they realized that they should just give the thing away for free as a strategic move. Um, and that was when we decided to sell to, to Microsoft is we didn't know, we, we knew we had a better product than chatter, but we didn't know how it would go if we were up against a free chatter. T tell us I honestly, think, yeah. how much did he offer? What was the meeting like where he made you the offer? We, yeah, so Take th us they to were the talking, yeah, they, so <laughs> here's, I'll, I'll tell you the backstory. I mean, this hasn't been public, publicly revealed, but, um, <laughs> here we go. <laughs> <laughs> in we in service exclusive. of the. In service of the all-in podcast. Go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead, David. Get us some ratings. <laughs> yeah, to try and... <laughs> in service of trying to get us from number three to number one on the charts. Um, no, you know, it's funny. We launched uh, Yammer at the TechCrunch 40 conference that, Jason, as you know, you are the co-founder of. And Benioff was like a judge. He was a panelist. And he was raving about it. And... You could just, you know, from, from the moment we launched, he was raving about it. You could see the light bulb go off with him. And, um, he realized that like social was going to be, it was, you know, at the time, obviously social was big with consumer social networks, but he saw the potential of social or collaboration inside the enterprise. And so, yeah, I mean, like I think a year later or something, they were interested in buying the company for around $250 million. The big, issue for them though was that Benioff had a bunch of like engineers who wanted to build it in-house and so they 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 actually I, I don't know what would have happened if um if they you know didn't want to build it themselves but but basically they vetoed doing a deal and so they ended up building chatter and they threw the 300 engineers at it and they basically spun their wheels for a few years and um, anyway, it turned out to be much better for us because we ended up selling the company for five times as much to Microsoft. Um, you know, if we had sold to Salesforce in like 2010, it would have been a much smaller deal. Um, but yeah, that I mean, he, he was very interested in it from the, from the get-go. All right, folks, there you have it. Breaking news in the background <laughs> on what actually happened. Congratulations to Stuart and the team. Yeah. Wait, I want to ask a question. Chamath oh. and Sachs, did you guys... <clears throat> Um, keep all of the shares you you originally invested in um, to the exit here, just to set the context for folks. You know, you, you invest in a company; it's a small startup. It's exiting for, for thirty billion. Yeah, did, for did you hold just, it? Yeah. I'll, I'll, uh, for every share that I owned, half of it were half. No, uh, 
Yeah, for for of 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 a hundred shares that I owned per every hundred that I owned, um, ten of them I sold at thirty eight right at the direct listing. Um, I want to say forty of them I sold uh, in the mid twenties, and uh, the rest of it just got taken out at this price. So your dollar cost average to the, you know, whatever, high 30s, maybe 40 or something. Uh, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I don't uh, know my exact. I mean, I I, I I sold some and I still own some. So, um, you know, I definitely got my my beak wet from this acquisition. Oh, 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 um, but <laughs> but uh, no, but look, I, I, I think I probably sold, you know, more than half of them, you know, um, and that was a mistake. And, you know, one of my biggest learnings as an investor has been to let your winners ride. You know, my biggest mistake as an investor has not been the losers. It's all it's been selling the winners prematurely. Yeah, you my, did that with uh, U- Uber yeah. as well, David. Uh, and I sold some Uber before, but I kept a lot of my Uber, maybe most of it or half of it. I think anyway. Uber, it, Facebook. I mean, Facebook. You know, when they IPO'd, it was worth fifty billion. We all thought that was like unbelievable. I mean, because it was over a fifty x return. But so um, what's the lesson for sex? Just never sell anything if you can help it. I uh, I sold all of my Facebook in 2014 and bought Amazon and Tesla. I think that you have to be able to sell for two reasons: liquidity and moral obligation. Hmm. Yeah, I mean that's an exaggeration. I mean you can never. It's 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 people need to be able to sell, but to the extent you can hold on, uh, just don't sell everything. You know, always you know, keep. Um, you know, yeah, keep, it, keep, keep I mean, think it. about the people yeah. who were at Apple in the 80s or Microsoft in the 80s or Amazon in the 90s. A lot of those people got frustrated holding the shares for so long. Mm-hmm. And I think keeping at least 20% of your shares forever, you know, could be amazing. There was somebody told me had never sold a single share of I don't know if that's a true Dude, story I, or not. I, I told you that. You can't be okay. leaking that information. <laughs> okay. Anyway, I didn't know Siren. that was a leak. Whoop, whoop, whoop. Whoop. <laughs> oh, okay. More breaking news. <laughs> Let's move to AlphaFold. Let's move to AlphaFold. Must credit all in podcast. Oh my God. The same may may or may not be true with and his shares. You know what we should do is we should do a, um, we should put beeps in there, Nick. I was told had never sold a share of and then we just let everybody react to it. (laughs) This way nobody knows what we're talking about. I, I, I do know that has not sold a single share and it has only sold shares of to fund capital calls which is an incredible statement to fortitude and vision incredible oh lord incredible it's by the way by the way it's, it's not always worked out because he did the same with and those didn't go as well yeah i mean look you you have to diversify when when you've got all your eggs in one basket in one company obviously you have to sell some shares but um you know, one of the things I've just learned over the last 20 years is probably, you know, people ask me, what's your biggest regret or learning or whatever. It's just selling too early is like one of the biggest mistakes you can make. Um, look at PayPal. PayPal is now a $250 billion company. We sold it in 2002 for $1.5 billion. We thought that was a great deal at the time. And we sold it for less than 1% of what it's worth today. And the product's basically the same. You know, so it's never just compounding. Sell is the lesson. Never sell. If it's a winner Ride it. You can pair. Well, okay, right. hold on, hold on. I'm going to put a final nail this coffin. Then we're going to go to AlphaFold. There's a great <clears throat> quote by Warren Buffett, which is, um, "If you know what you're doing, the best thing you can do is be as concentrated as possible." Nobody ever got rich in their seventh best idea, and I think that that basically sums it up. But 
you have to be in a position to have the ability to have that kind of portfolio allocation. And I think that's hard. Freebird, explain AlphaFold, please. Uh, okay, let's explain. Give me two minutes on I'll explain proteins and then um, the importance of proteins and then AlphaFold. So um, the numbers to remember are 4, 3, and 20. There are four nucleic acids that make up your DNA. We all learned this in high school biology. Um, sets of three, A, C, T, and G combinations, define an amino acid. There are 20 amino acids. Um, and uh, a protein is a string of amino acids. So in your body, in every cell, there are these um, organelles. They make uh, proteins by reading the DNA, taking a copy of it, and turning it into uh, amino acid chains. And that's what we kind of call proteins. Um, but what's interesting is when you make a chain of amino acids, so there's 20 of them that you could put in each point in the chain, it doesn't come out as a long chain. What happens is those amino acids, the whole thing collapses, and it turns into a very specific shape. And the shape of that protein is what defines its function. So pretty much every biological function uh, across all life um, uh, is, uh, is undertaken by proteins doing something. Some proteins like hemoglobin in our red blood cells will has a very specific little pocket where oxygen molecules stick into the pocket and then it moves the oxygen from your lungs to your cells. It's a pretty amazing protein to exist uh, and it, it specifically is shaped to do that exact function. There are other proteins that can, for example, rip apart other molecules, break a, a, a molecular bond, um, there are other proteins, for example, that can take nitrogen out of the atmosphere and put it into plants' uh, cells that the plants can then use to grow. Um, it, there's an incredible, um, uh, you know, a set of potential on the nanoscale of what you can do with proteins, and we see that in life, and we're just shocked and awed and amazed by it every day. But in order to figure out how to create proteins that uh, that do specific things, you have to know how do those amino acids turn into the shape that the protein ultimately takes, and that's what's called protein folding. Um, and so the, the hard thing is, um, and, and, and you know, why is this important? It's important because we can easily read DNA and therefore we can figure out what amino acid sequence is being made to define that protein. But what we don't know really well is what is the shape of that protein and therefore how does it undertake the function that we see it taking in biology. And if you think about the reverse of this, the reverse of this, if you have a function you want to undertake in biology, you can design a protein to do that function for you. For example, bind to a specific uh, point on a cancer cell um, or you know, take carbon out of the atmosphere um, or pretty much anything else your, your mind can kind of imagine uh, on the nanoscale, proteins can be designed to do. The challenge is how do you write the code, which is the DNA, to make the protein that does that thing? Well, we don't know how the code turns into the shape. And that's what folding the folding problem is. So the folding problem, there's a data set, and the data set is what's the three-dimensional shape of a protein, and then what's the DNA code that defines the amino acid sequence that makes that protein. And how do you figure out how to predict the shape of the protein from the amino acid sequence? It has been an impossibility. And um, again, if you think about this chain of amino acids, they each have little... Um, you know, uh, uh, electrical spaces and, and the way that they bind to each other, it's very complicated. You can't just deterministically define it. You know, we don't have that level of understanding on a quantum scale. So what AlphaFold has done is they have now been able to predict from a sequence of amino acids what the protein shape will ultimately become by learning from a database of hundreds of thousands of structural protein um, 
um, uh, shapes that have been defined through really, really, really um, difficult, uh, you know, scanning microscopes and other techniques to really try and scan a protein on a microscopic scale, and then looking at the, the DNA sequence and figuring out, okay, what's the relationship? And the accuracy of their predictive model now is within the range of error of the microscopes that are being used to actually scan and measure those proteins. So that's incredible, because now theoretically you could come up with a design for a protein and you could actually build that protein by writing the amino acid sequence and that protein can do any number of things you want to do. And this has been a difficult problem that's been intractable by humanity and we've been challenged by it for decades. Um, for this machine learning breakthrough uh, to, to kind of be realized in literally less than three years. I mean, the, the, these guys were at a score of 40 last year, and this year they're at like nearly 90, 90. which is yeah. incredible. Yeah. And so now, um, you know, we can now predict what the shape will be from the, from the DNA sequence. And, and this is going to unlock this ability. Everyone's now going to take their model, if they license it or whatever they do with it, or people are going to go learn using the same techniques that, that DeepMind used. Um, but it just means that it's possible. And then scientists will go away and they'll say, you know what, I want to do this particular thing on a microscopic scale. Let me design in, in three-dimensional space a protein to do that thing. Okay, now let me go figure out how to make that protein by writing the DNA code, which is really easy if you can use this algorithm to solve that for you. And it is literally dollars and pennies to make proteins. We can write DNA on a computer. We can get printed DNA sent to us in 48 hours in a FedEx envelope for a DNA printing facility. We can put it in a, in a microbe and we can get that microbe to make the protein for us in a day. The lab cost, any high school biology class can do this now. So by being able to actually figure out what DNA to write based on the objective function of what do we want the protein to do, it's going to unlock this universe of things we can do in medicine, in environmental science. Uh, we can do things like break apart PET plastics. We can do things... Um, like fixing nitrogen from the atmosphere and getting rid of fertilizer plants. We can um, create all sorts of new, um, you know, food solutions, health solutions, environmental solutions. Any chance you can um, make a pizza that doesn't have carbohydrates? Because that's what I'm thinking about here is, is there a way yeah. we can make yeah. a healthy pasta or a pizza or something like that? But in all seriousness, what, what do you think the early wins will be out of this technology? And, and is this a theoretical win that will benefit from in 20 years? Or is this a serious breakthrough that we're going to benefit from in the near term, like no, I think one both, to five years? Bo both are true. This is a, an incredibly important advancement in machine learning. Um, but the reality is that, you know, Google will still have to spend, and DeepMind will have to spend a lot of time refining it. And then they have some really big ethical challenges ahead of it. How do you expose this technology to whom and under what conditions? And it's the same situation that OpenAI has with GPT-3. Although a, a lot of people, I think, you know, the the scale of the computer science challenge maybe was a, a bigger win in GPT-3 because it was a much more open space. Um, and I think this is a much more specific sort of almost expert system in a way. Um, but the the downstream commercial implications of this are just enormous. Um, and so the, the, just think about this, like this is where like you got to you got to love companies like Google, the fact that they exist, because from, you know, page rank in 1999, to CPC ads in 2003 and four, um, we have AlphaFold in 2020. And that to me is just, that's just This is bananas. an argument against breaking up tech because only a tech company with this amount of resource knowledge can then go spend a billion dollars on DeepMind I mean, over the past decade. Alpha, Alphabet's burning four to $5 billion a year on their quote unquote other bets line. 
and people give them a lot of shit for it. But I mean, you hit any one of these things and it's a $100 billion payday. I mean, look at YouTube. YouTube's easily a $100 billion payday on a billion dollar bet, billion six. Oh, no, uh, that's a, that's a yeah. 250 to $500 uh, billion dollar applied company. Applied Semantics, a lot of people miss this, but Applied Semantics was a $100 million bet. And that's the entirety of AdSense initially. Android, right? Chrome. Android. Um, right. you know, and, is, this, yeah. is this the first commercial application of DeepMind? Because until now, you no. know, they've had alpha zero. It's been- so there, there was a period of time. A lot of people, I don't know if, uh, let me just think about this for a second. Because right, alpha zero, uh, alpha zero uh, was really uh, good. Uh, I, I want to be careful about this, but Please I do be think careful that. Careful to not disclose. No, but I, I do think, I do think it was disclosed that they've used DeepMind, uh, to improve ads quality and yeah. to improve, um, uh, YouTube viewing. And as a result of that, you get the number of hours per day of the average user on YouTube to double or triple ad revenue goes by 3x. And I think in one quarter, Google was able to generate something like an incremental 15 billion annualized revenue from DeepMind's yeah. and algorithm. You know, and you know what that DeepMind actually did on YouTube? It sent everybody to the alt-right and InfoWars and Ben Shapiro. Congratulations. Be <laughs> careful when you send people's minds with artificial intelligence. Maybe you just argued to break them up. <laughs> yeah. But I, I understand, Sachs, that it's being used broadly across the products at Google in in a, in, a, in, a, in now now in a much more careful way is my understanding. And I'm, look, I'm a I'm a I'm, I'm a big ally of Alphabet. And I'm a big fan, and I love you know they the, were and I used to work there, and I'm very close to people there. So uh, you know who like, used to be on the board and was the major backer of that company, DeepMind, Founders Fund, Founders Fund, Elon Musk too, and he yeah. begged them to not sell to Google because I, I mean four hundred million dollar four hundred million dollar exit was. A steal with for 40 Google. or 50 scientists, I think. Yeah, had. absolute steal. No, Elon. I mean, Elon has publicly said that he thinks DeepMind is like the greatest threat. To, well, he thinks AI is the greatest threat to humanity. And of the people working on AI, DeepMind is the furthest along and therefore most dangerous. He, he tried to stop. He t- I mean, he yeah. told me straight up, like, when he's been very public about this since, that he. He said, I'll give you an unlimited amount of money to not sell to Google. He's friends with Larry Page, too. But he said, don't sell. I want you to be independent. I want you to keep working on this. But he said that when he saw the AI there become aware that it was an AI, that that was when he was like, wait a second. No, wait. Deep deep mind is not. (laughs) Alpha fold or alpha zero is not self-aware. That's, he it he has, felt it was becoming self-aware that it knew what it was. I, I don't know if that was just Elon, you know, just sort of. No, it's uh, not. It it's not self-aware. So, I mean, I mean I've, I've watched. The, yeah. I mean, the, the amazing things that DeepMind has released prior to this were games, right? They had this um, chess, Publicly. this chess AI called Alpha Zero, which rapidly became not just the best chess. Um, it, it not only beat every human in the world, it also beat every chess engine because computers became more, you know, better at chess than humans a long time ago because of their sheer computational power. But, uh, Alpha Zero plays like a human, but with kind of that same computational power. And so that created a whole revolution in chess engines. And then they also did that with a game called Go. They created Alpha Go. And basically every single game that you can think of, uh, Deep Minds created, you know, an alpha, whatever alpha version that um, destroys both humans and computers. But this is the first thing they've publicly announced that that seems like it will be available to others eventually that could have tremendous social impact. Imagine uh, the government trying to understand this. Can you imagine them being brought before like senators? <laughs> well, these are these are these are the new weapons of mass destruction. I mean, let's yeah. be honest, like if if somebody else had 
had AlphaFold, and probably somebody does and just hasn't said, you know, I mean, Google actually values transparency. So that's the only reason why we know. Um, imagine what they could do, as Friedberg said, it's like, you know, the, the opposite of this is basically to design um, a specific protein that basically, um, you know, destroys organs or there, there know, are proteins called prions, which are the scariest thing known in biology, <laughs> in my opinion, uh, a prion is a protein that it actually finds similar proteins. And based on its shape, it gets those proteins to change and it becomes like a virus. And prions actually um, are, there's an extremely uh, sad series of diseases that are related to prions where your body expresses a protein in the wrong way. And then that protein itself gets other proteins to change and creates copies of itself and it spreads. Um, it is a, a fascinatingly scary um, biological phenomenon. But, you know, there, there are extremely scary things you can do with the designer protein capabilities in the wrong hands. To listen to the rest of the podcast, search for All In with Chamath, Jason, Sachs, and Friedberg, available across all major podcasting platforms.